Jesus. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the gospel. Jesus, thank you that you actually paid the debt, that you actually raised this life up. Lord, we, for, for everyone in this room, Lord, who walks in this morning carrying the weight of discouragement, of loneliness, of the reality of sin, Jesus, we ask, remind us, remind us, show us again, draw our hearts and our eyes afresh, Lord, raise this life up from the dead. God, you're so good. We need you, dependent on you. We love you, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated, church. Is that me? Is that the Holy Spirit? Welcome. I'm so glad you guys are here. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. What a joy to be together. We're continuing our series in the Psalms today. Uh, we've spent all summer going through individual Psalms. We've only got a couple more weeks of that in two weeks. We finish out our time in the Psalms. We're going to have our awesome baptism and baby dedication Sunday. We're going to celebrate new life. And then we jump into our fall series. We're going to do a couple cool things this fall. We're going to go through the book of Ruth together. We're going to walk through uh, the gospel story as the scripture lays it out, beginning to end, creation to heaven, which I think will be cool. Um, but for now, we're still in the Psalms. And I'm stoked for it. we got a couple good texts We're going to be in Psalm 139 today, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have house Bibles in the end of each row. There's a little rack hidden under some of the chairs with Bibles in them. You feel free to grab one. We really are passionate about access to God's Word here at Emmanuel. If you're here today and you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, I would invite you. Snag one of those and take it home, or better yet, talk to one of our pastors. We'll get you a nicer one uh, than those ones. Um, But Psalm 139, we're going to be there today. Uh, For some of you guys, you hear that one, and it's already a familiar text. Psalm 139 is a relatively famous text, most often because it's used um, as a biblical proof text around pro-life issues, right? Like Psalm 139 is one of the several texts that really clearly spell out kind of the biblical view, God's view on human life within the womb. And that's beautiful. That's definitely a part of this text. Um, And we'll celebrate that piece as we get to it. But I want to say that up front because honestly, I think on the whole, that's actually not the main theme of this text, right? This text as a whole speaks to a larger issue about God's grandness, about the power of God, the presence of God, the all everythingness of God, and what that means for you as a finite human being. I think that's the larger theme of this text. And the reason I mention that piece, right, kind of like the difference here, why this text is famous, really kind of versus what the main thrust of the text is, is it can be really easy to get derailed on current social issues, even in important ones, right? Like I'm not belittling that. But we can be so caught up in like the social application of a text that we miss what God may be speaking to our own hearts, right? And I want to really encourage you guys today to do the work you need to do to be present in this text and hear what God has for you. I really believe as I've been praying and meditating and kind of digging into this text this week, I think God has something for us in this. And it connects back to this idea, guys. God's heart for you is love. Beloved, God, God loves you. God sees you. God is 
for you. And that, when you think of that next to the grandness of God, that's a massive statement. It's a massive statement to consider the the creator and sustainer of the universe acknowledging you, much less caring for you with a deep and present and intimate and concerned love like the scripture says that he does. There's this, uh, there's this quote from Tim Keller. It's pretty famous. I've actually referenced it before. It gets used in sermons a lot. It says this. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. Right? If someone loves you but doesn't know you, it's like, okay, fine. But that doesn't, it's comforting doesn't really mean a lot. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is well, it's, a lot like, it's a lot like being loved by God. It's what we, what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness. And it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. It's a, it's a good quote, right? You can see why that one gets like popped out for, for sermon references a lot, right? It's a good one. What's interesting about that quote is that it's from a marriage book, Right? Like, this is Tim Keller and his wife's reflection on biblical Christian marriage. And, you know, like, you hear that, and you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I can see how that applies, right? But what I think's interesting is that this quote from a marriage book gets brought out and quoted in sermons often because I think we kind of inherently know there's something more to this truth than just romance and romantic love, right? Like, like we can see how that would apply in the context of a biblical marriage, but I think that idea of longing to be fully known, to have that kind of intimacy, and then to still receive, like, deep, full love is, is not just a romantic inclination, but is a deeply human desire, right? That's something that is deep in the DNA, in the soul of what it means to be humans. We want our lives to be lived in a context of safe and reciprocal and intimate love. We're communal creatures. I would say this, this grabs a hold of some of the deepest parts of what it means to be you. And beloved, in Christ, it's true. In Christ, you are fully known and you are fully loved. This is honestly all we're actually talking about today. I know we haven't actually read the text yet, but I want to lay this out there. Sometimes like, I'll do like the three points and consider this and consider that, and, and you know, some of that's in here. But, but really, this is what this text is getting at. The creator God of the universe sees you. He knows you. And he loves you. And that's, that's, just, that's just a really big deal, right? There's a lot to that. Jesus invites you to know God even as you are known by God. Jesus invites you to live your life in this broken and sinful world, actually within your design. That longing, that deep human longing to be known and loved, that hearkens to your design as a human being, made in the image of God. God is perfect and God is communal, right? Father, Son, and Spirit. And God made you like him. You're not an animal with just a body. You're not an angel with just a spirit. You're a human. Uniquely created in the image of God to be like him. And in your inherent, in your very design is this longing for this divine community, this knowledge and this love. And in Jesus, 
Beloved, you can have that. You can have that intimacy. Jesus makes a way for you to live in this world facing every day, every changing circumstance, every suffering, every joy, and every hurt with the assurance of your position as a beloved child of God. Forgiven of sin and called into a perfect eternity with the lover of your soul. Come on, church. Mm. Psalm 139. Let's read this. It's a longer one. Psalm 139, starting in the first verse, we read this. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I, if I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I live on the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand holds on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret. When I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. God, if only you would kill the wicked. You bloodthirsty men, stay away from me. Who invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with an extreme hatred. Consider them my enemies. In verse 23, search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. In this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Jesus, we ask today, as we take a few minutes to sit honestly in this text, Lord, we ask that you would just meet our hearts afresh. Lord, we pray that you would draw us back to the truth of your word, the truth of your gospel, the truth of your heart for us today. Lord, for those of us in this room who don't even know you yet, who are considering and searching and thinking of whether or not we want to submit to you as Lord, I pray that you would give us a clear picture of your gospel today. For those of us who do know you, who are seeking after you, who are in Christ, Lord, whether, whether we have, are new in our faith or whether we've been following you for years, Lord, I pray that today you would give us fresh eyes to see and fresh ears to hear. Draw us afresh to the well of living water. Lord, don't, don't allow our crusty, stubborn, stiff-neckedness to keep us away from the refreshing truth of the gospel. Refresh us again, Lord. We love you. We need you for this. So we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. It's a long one, right? And it takes a major turn at the end. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? You're going along like, this is so beautiful. I could print this out and like put this like over a sunset in my living room. And then it gets to the end and all of a sudden it's just like a little, a little too gory. And you're like, oh, I'll leave that part off when I print it out. <laughs> a major turn there at the end. So, so a couple of textual thoughts to kind of get us started. I want to kind of bullet point out a couple things to think about. Because I want to actually take some time to work our way through this text chunk by chunk and see what God has for us. But a couple things kind of put us in that frame of mind. The first one is, if you've noticed, this is a longer psalm than most of the ones we've looked at, right? Like, this is a larger chunk of text, a larger number of verses. But I think the overall flow of Psalm 139 is actually relatively simple, right? Like, you can kind of kind of follow where he's going. It's, you, don't, you don't necessarily get as quickly get lost in the weeds of all the different language and metaphor, because it's, it's, it's relatively simple in that regard. He doesn't use a lot of imagery. He doesn't use a lot of metaphors, just a couple sprinkled through. And the main theme, he really sticks to it all the way through. This is one of the Psalms that's directly attributed to David. We don't know when he wrote this one. We don't necessarily know why he wrote this one. But the text tells us he wrote this one, which can kind of help us put some of it in its historical context and things like this. Structurally, though, what we see in Psalm 139 is four movements equally made up of six verses each. You see kind of four, four sections, each with six verses, each with kind of three of these couplets, and it works its way through, one through six, seven through 12, and kind of goes through to the end. And in this psalm, there's both a progressive element and a comparing and contrasting element. So the progressive element is he opens and closes with the same thought, right? Lord, search me, know me, like see into my innermost being. And then you see him progress through kind of reflecting on who God is, what his power is like, what his place is in the world, and how that affects David. And you see that kind of moving from this place of like, kind of like, ooh, this is intense, to this place of worship and joy and, and intimacy and commitment to God. But there's also this compare and contrast piece, where the first two stanzas and the last two stanzas, or the first two sections, the last two sections, show us this difference, right? Where like, in the beginning... He reflects on who God is and how powerful he is, and then kind of has a negative response to it. Like, that's too intense for me. And then he reflects on who God is again, and in the last part, actually has this, even though it's weird for us to read it, actually has this positive response to God of like, I'm all for you, I'm all in, your, your thoughts are lovely to me. And so you see this kind of contrasting in David's initial reaction to who God is, and then his reaction to who God is upon further reflecting on it. But all of that, all of that comes back to this larger theme. Psalm 139, we see David reflecting on the vastness and greatness of God compared to the finiteness of human limitations. This text gives us David's various reactions to this grand God. So to better wrap our heads around it, let's go through each one of these movements, these, each one of these six verse sections, and just kind of see how the text progresses as it works through. I really do like, I think this is one of those texts that just, the, the meaning of it is very plain and on the surface. Like it's just, it's just there for us to sit in and stew in. And I think that's good for us today. There's not a huge amount, there's some, there's not a huge amount of cultural or contextual work we have to do to really hear what's in this text. Ultimately, as I think we work through this, we're going to see this heart of David is expressing in the opening and closing verses is really where this is getting at. God, I long for you to know me. We long to be fully known by God because we were made to be fully known by God. 
And praise be to God that Jesus actually makes a way for that impossible thing to happen. That we're not left stuck in that unfulfilled longing, but our creator makes it such that we can know him even as we are known. Amen? Okay, so first movement. This is verses one through six. God fully knows me. Let, let me reread this to kind of get us in this, in this section. We'll talk about a couple things. Verse one through six. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You're aware of all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You've encircled me. You've placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. I love this line. It is lofty. I'm unable to reach it. David, in these, in these opening verses, tells us one of the most fundamental theological truths about God. He knows everything. This is what theologians call the omniscience of God. He knows everything. He knows about everything. Which means, by the way, that he knows everything about you and about me. In our text, David is laid out before God. What he does, when he rests, where he goes, what he thinks, what he says. And it's presented so absolute. David said that God encircles him, that his hand is upon him. Like this is the creative poetic way of saying all of David exists within the scope of God's knowledge and God's will. That's a big statement. Can we sit in that truth for a moment? All of you as a human being exists within the scope of God's knowledge and God's will. You are not mysterious to God. He knows you. That's it's big. And you can't escape it. God is simply bigger than you. This is the kind of grand truth that, that I think oftentimes, like, if you're churched, you can easily fit this within your theological framework, right? Like, mentally, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. If God is who the Bible describes him to be, then he knows all things, including myself. All of me is laid out before him, yet he has complete and total knowledge of me. But then, when you actually consider it in practice, it's astounding. And if we're honest... It's not just astounding, it's disconcerting. There is nothing about you mysterious to God. Your whole person is laid bare before him. Ugh. (laughs) I don't like that. (laughs) There's a whole lot of my person that I don't want laid bare before anyone. There's a whole lot of my person that I dislike, that is shameful that I think is better kept secret, right? And yet none of that, none of that is hidden from the Lord. He sees all of you. I have this thing in life where people, uh, I meet new people and eventually they find out I'm a pastor. And I play this mental game when I meet new people where I see how long I can avoid telling them I'm a pastor. And the reason is because the minute someone finds out I'm a pastor, I watch this happen. The minute they find out, the gears start turning in their head and they go, have I cussed in this conversation? <laughs> and it's a hundred, like, you can laugh. It's a hundred percent true. It's a million percent true. It does not matter whether or not I have expressed anything that might say that I, I have opinions one way or the other about that. But they'll sit and they'll consider if they've cussed in this opening conversation, getting to know me. And then almost every time, 
They'll apologize for their language. Oh, you're a pastor? Oh, sorry for how I've been talking to you. Some of you are going, I think I did that when I met you. (laughs) And that's honestly, like, it doesn't bug me. It's funny. But I, I, I thought of that as I read this text where he says, you know every single one of my words before they even cross over my tongue. Before I even fully think them, you know every word that comes out of my mouth. That's intense. Can you imagine? I mean, can you sit in the practical reality for a moment that the, the holy and righteous creator God of the universe knows every word you have ever spoken? Even the careless ones? I feel like I should have been thinking about that a little more presently when I was working on my lawnmower this weekend. <laughs> and some of you know the details of that story, and you're like, you should have. <laughs> Man, it's intense. And it's uncomfortable. I mean, my gosh, the Lord knows us so well. It is no wonder that David's response is, you are lofty. You are above me. This is just too much for me. I mean, how many of us have ever had a relationship where the intimacy went just a little beyond what we're comfortable with and we got scared of going a little farther and being a little more known, right? That's a normal human reaction to like deepening intimacy is going, oof, I don't know if I, I don't know if I feel safe with you knowing me this well. Beloved, your relationship with God is that times a bajillion. It doesn't matter what you reveal or don't reveal to him. He already knows. And that's difficult, which perfectly leads us. It makes the second movement make so much more sense. Starting in verse seven, where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I live on the eastern horizon or settle on the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand holds on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me. The light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like day and darkness and light are alike to you. David is reflecting on what theologians call the omnipresence of God. He's everywhere. But notice, David's reflection here all of a sudden doesn't seem so terribly positive. David can't escape God. And it's genuinely disconcerting. It's uncomfortable. Wherever he goes, God is there. God is everywhere David could possibly go to try to escape him. God is in the places where David can't go. He's quite literally everywhere. For some of us, You read this text, or maybe you have read this text, and this section, this idea of God's constant presence is a comfort. He's always with me. His hand is always guiding me. And you think about how intimately God knows you. The same same can be true. It can be this, this beautiful reassurance. But it can also be something very dreadful, right? God knows you. Like, he really knows you. And he's with you. He's really with you. All the time. God knows what you do in the darkness. God knows the thoughts, the hurts, the struggles, the sins, the parts of you that you fight desperately to keep hidden from this world. The parts of you that you don't want other people to know about. The parts of you that you would lie about if asked directly in small group, right? the parts about you that you don't even like considering yourself, so you avoid thinking about them. God knows them. He knows them just as well as he knows you. And beyond that, here this church, 
He is with you while you participate in those things. The darkness cannot hide your sin. Beloved, the dark is as day to God. He knows the sins you run to in secret. He's there while you run to them. Beyond this, he knows the dark times where you sit and you buy into lies about yourself, about your identity. He's present while you contemplate those dark things. Those of you who struggle with self-hatred or mental health or any of those things, like the Lord, the Lord doesn't just know about that. He is he's present with you in those moments of darkness. When the curse affects you in horrific ways and injustices are done to you, in the moment and later when you reflect upon them and how those affect the way you view God and the world and yourself, the Lord knows those things and beyond knowing them, He is with you in the moment, during the injustice, and later, as you reflect upon it, as it affects you, you cannot get away from Him. Beloved, you hear nothing else today. The Lord God sees you. He is present with you. Because I get David's response here. There are places I go in my own heart, my own head, my own sin, that I hate. They're shameful to me. I wish they weren't there. And I wish God didn't know these things about me. It's painful to think of God knowing me in that way. Much less to think about God being with me in the midst of that shameful darkness. I don't like that. But I think some of us, I think some of us in this room today, like, this is the truth we need to focus on. If that's you in this space, if the thought of God being with you in the darkness gets your shame on overdrive, right? Like, if you're already hearing this going, this is terrible. This is like the least encouraging sermon I've heard to date. Take heart. Be encouraged. Because here's the thing. The God of the universe does not meet you in your darkest, most shameful place with shame. He does not come to you with condemnation. In Christ, there is no condemnation. The holy, righteous, perfect creator God of the universe, beloved, loves you and meets you with grace. He loves you. Because he meets you in those spaces Spaces with love. He meets you deeply in those spaces with love. He meets you powerfully in those spaces with his love. That reaction, the shame, the discomfort, perfectly normal. But I assure you, you need not worry. You need not fret. God knows you. God is with you. God sees you. And that knowledge, that intimacy, beloved, hear this, it leads the Lord to sympathy, to compassion, to love, and to sacrifice on your behalf. The Lord's response to your rebellion, your sin, your injustice, your hurt, your shame, is not condemnation, but is the sacrifice of his own son on your behalf. Your sin draws the Lord to compassion. Scripture says it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance because that is where he meets you in your darkest moments. 
The dark is his light to him. And you are born out before him. And he sees every bit. And you may want to run away. You may want to run away. You may hate that. That may make you uncomfortable to consider that you can't get away from him. But beloved, as you run, you will find the Lord is always there. There's this poem I love called The Hound of Heaven. It was written by this guy who had struggled with opium and addiction and destroyed his life and was dying of the side effects of his addiction. And he met Christ in the midst of his recovery and getting out of that drug addiction. And in his deathbed, he was bedridden the rest of his life because of the physical side effects. He wrote this poem where he likens God to a bloodhound on the scent. And he talks about spending his life fleeing from God and running from sin and hiding place to sin and hiding place. And constantly every stanza comes back to, but, but I could hear you sniffing, chasing, moving, digging through, rooting through my mess, seeking me out. I couldn't get away from you. The hound of heaven on my scent wouldn't let go. Beloved, that's how God meets you in the darkness with compassion, with love, with grace. If you're here today, and we got into this text, and at this point you're going, I hate this. It's a natural response. It's a natural response. Beloved, you need not fret. The God of the universe loves you. Which takes us into this next section, verses 13 through 18. For it was you who created me in my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you. Because you have been remarkably, I've been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works, Lord, are wondrous. I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast the sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. Well, as you consider God's knowledge and God's presence, the truth of the matter is that this makes sense because God made you. Of course he knows you. He knows you the way a master builder knows a project he poured his heart and soul into. If any of you have ever been to my house, I have this, this, this nasty old coffee table in my living room. And I say it's nasty and old because it's literally made out of an old deck. I built it uh, early, early in Kim and I's marriage. There was, there was a point before we had, there was a point in our life when we had no kids, but we did have a garage. And in that context, I decided I was going to be a guy who's into woodworking. And so I got a whole bunch of tools and I asked for tools for Christmas and my birthday. And I started reading all these books and watching YouTube videos. And I thought, I'm going to learn how to make stuff and build stuff. And I really enjoyed it. It was something I was at the time super into. And I would just take my free time and go and cut up wood and scrap wood and stuff I got for free and build stuff. And I'll tell you guys, I was terrible at this. I never took shop class in high school. I didn't know what I was doing. I, was, I literally read a library book about saws, guys. And then I just went for it, right? And, and 99% of the stuff I built or attempted to build, I either didn't finish or it broke immediately. Right? Like that was just kind of how this went down. But of everything I built, the one thing 10 years later that's still there is this coffee table. I built this coffee table out of, out of literally old scrap wood. I helped a friend tear down their deck. And I took some of the wood and thought I could build something out of that. And I made this table. And I love this table. I, li- I, li- I like it a lot. Here's the thing about it. It's kind of terrible. It really is. It's kind of terrible. And what's wild is I can tell you, I can tell you every little bit about it. I can tell you that like, this is kind of why it wobbles this way. This is why this part isn't exactly square, right? Because I built it. It was my hands. It was my design. It was my, my work, my sweat that put it together. I remember 
driving the nails in, putting the glue here, putting a cross member here to give it a, like, I remember those pieces. And so if you were to sit and pick it apart and ask me questions about why it's terrible, I could answer most of them, right? Because it was a project that even though I built it on a whim, it's a project that I built, that I was really into. I put myself into it, right? Praise be to God that the Lord is a master builder, (laughs) far better than I am. But what this text reminds us of is that God, you are not a project that God built out of scrap parts on a whim. You're, you're something that God built with intentionality, that he thought through, that he considered, that he cares about. Of course he knows you. Of course he knows you. He knows every bit of you. You were designed by him. He put you together. He thought up the idea of you. He designed you. He put the pieces in place to make it happen. One of the only actual metaphors in this text is in this section where God is compared to a weaver, like doing this project of knitting the pieces together in the womb to make you who you are, right? If you guys know Maddie Donahue, then you know what this looks like. The weaving is not the same as knitting or crocheting. And I know knitting and crocheting are not the same thing either. I know that like intellectually. (laughs) But practically speaking, it's all just people with sticks and string making stuff, right? Anyway. uh, (laughs) The Donahues are in our GC. And one of the things I love about Maddie is that she pretty much always has a project with her. And so we'd be sitting in the circle in our living room, like pouring out our souls and praying for each other. And you just hear this like, tick, 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 tick. And slowly there's baby blankets and scarves and weird little gnomes that hold kitchen towels. Like that's a thing too. Like just coming to existence in the corner of my living room. It's wonderful. Uh, you should buy one of her uh, kitchen towel gnomes. <laughs> but I love that image. I love that image because it's, it's something that takes this intentionality and this creativity and where before there was literally a ball of string, now there is something, something beautiful, something intentional, something designed. That is the metaphor David uses for how God designed you. His hands were involved. You don't, you don't crochet something by accident, right? It takes thought and intentionality and presence of mind and design ahead of time and care afterward Beloved, that is the heart of God for you. He made you, designed you, put you together. If you're in this place today and you struggle with self, I feel like this is probably some of us in the room today. Whether that looks like self-hatred or negative self-talk or body shame or fill in the blank, I want you to hear this piece today. I want you to not move past this text. You live. You live and breathe and your heart beats because the God of the universe delighted to make you as you are. He delighted to make you. Yes, the curse is real. Yes, it affects you. And there are things that misfire and don't function the way they ought. But beloved, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God did not make you on a whim. God did not use scraps or leftovers. He lovingly, designed and created and sustains you. You're here today because the Lord delighted to make you. He wove you together. He saw you down to the bones. Before you existed, when you weren't, he saw you and saw what you would be. 
and saw every day of your life from beginning to end. The Lord knows you and makes you. He's truly awesome. He's so vast. In the beginning of the text, David responded to God's knowledge with this sort of mixture of reverence and discomfort. Right? Like he reflects on who God is, and then he kind of runs away and is like, ugh, I want to be away from this. This is intense. But here, here, David considers afresh the intimacy with which God knows him, his knowledge, his presence, and his response is joy. It's worship. All of a sudden, the thoughts of God are precious. The presence of God when I wake is a comfort. God is good to us. This is contrast, right? Before, it was kind of scary. It was disconcerting. But as David sits with it longer and considers how intimately God knows him and yet how present God is in his life, it leads him to joy and to worship, which makes the, final, the transition to the final movement a little stranger for us as modern readers. Verses 19 to 24. God, if only you would kill the wicked. <laughs> Took a turn. <laughs> you bloodthirsty men, stay away from me. Who invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, I, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I want to encourage you guys. Even though this fourth movement is kind of, kind of just uncomfortable for us as modern Western readers to read this. I don't, I don't want you to miss what God has in this closing section for you. We need to put this section in its proper context. Essentially, it's this. This is David's impassioned way of expressing that he wants to be fully aligned with God and separated from rebellion against God. He wants there to be nothing in between himself and God. I know the language is super intense, right? But you do have to remember, this is an ancient warrior king, right? And this is an ancient warrior king's way of crying out for deep intimacy. Rather than dismiss this part because of violent imagery, I want you to take a moment with me and just kind of let it be what it is. Consider it as it's handed to you. David is trying to separate himself from God's enemies, from those who rebel against connection with God and says, no, I want to be deeply connected to God. I want to be as far away as I can from what rebels and separates me from God. I want to be connected to my creator, the one who sees me, the one who knows me, the one who's with me. Takes this text as that for a minute. And then let's see how this actually connects to the larger teaching of the psalm. When we do that, I think what we see is that something has shifted for David. No longer does knowledge, the knowledge and presence of God push him away. Rather, it draws him closer to embrace his God, to draw as near as possible. I think, I think what's basically being said in this text is that David's desire to have nothing in between himself with God, that, 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 that anything that might draw him away from God or separate them would go away. He wants to be as far as possible away from rebellion against God and as close as possible to God. I actually think it's better for us to see this section not as David like standing in judgment against the sinners. Like remember like David was a sinner, right? But rather as God's being against the kind of rebelliousness that draws sinners to stand against God. David wants no part of this. So you see it. He invites God to check his heart. I really do, God. I want intimacy with you. And so ultimately, this text lands with David asking God to do again what he's already done. Search me and know me. Look at me. If there's anything that shouldn't be there, change it. 
Lead me in your way, God. Lead me to be like you. I know you already know me. I know you already see me. I know you're already with me. But please, Lord, search me again. If there's anything there that shouldn't be, change it. I love this progression. David considering who God is and what he does, and then running away in fear and shame or whatever, and then considering it again and running straight to God and embracing the intimacy. I love that. It's beautiful. I want to give us a couple thoughts to kind of land this thing. I think what we see in this text is essentially the inherent human desire to be connected and loved. Right? Go back to the Tim Keller quote we opened with. Humans long for deep connection on a bone level, right? And there's a reason for this. We're made in God's image. We're not animals. We're not angels. We're humans with bodies and spirits made to be like God. God is communal. We're communal. God lives in deep, abiding, present intimacy. We long to live in deep, abiding, present intimacy. But there is this horrible irony here. That while our very souls long to be known and loved and live in this sort of exchange of love and relationship, we can't. We can't. We can't fully experience that in this world for two reasons. Sin separates us from God, and our Creator is so above us. He's so distant from us. I mean, at the end of the day, guys, God is above you. You can't do anything about that. He's God. You're a human. He knows you in ways you literally don't understand. You cannot know him the same way because he's too grand for you. Scripture calls him the invisible God. This is the way of just saying he's beyond comprehension. He's too complex for you to fully grasp. But this isn't just an intellectual problem. It's also a sin and a holiness problem. You can't fully be with God because you would straight up just be destroyed. Sin cannot be in the presence of God's holiness. There's this movie, uh, Sunshine, from like the early, it's like a sci-fi movie from like the early aughts, where like the sun is going out, so they send these astronauts in this special ship to like blow, I don't know, it's very dumb, to reignite the sun and get it going. And, and the main plot of the story is the closer they get to the sun, one of the characters kind of starts to go crazy and get obsessed with staring at the sun. And like, they've got this filter and they've got to like keep it. Su- and at some point, this guy goes crazy and he turns the filter off and the sun fries him into a crisp, right? Spoiler, sorry. It's like a 15-year-old movie. So That's the way, the sun has no ill intent toward that guy, Right? But human beings can't be in the presence of the sun. It's too grand for them. Sinfulness cannot be in the presence of holiness. It's too perfect. That's why the scripture says you can't see God and live. It's why when Isaiah walks into the throne room of God, he's terrified. It's why when God appears to people in the scripture, they fall on their face in fear. Because sin can't be in the presence of God. It's too much. It'll burn you up. It'll burn you away. Like walking up to the sun and trying to stare at it. Destroy you. So we have this horrible irony of longing for God and being unable to comprehend him and unable to be with him. That stinks. But man, this text opens and closes with this invitation for the speaker to be known by God. It's, it's strange, right? Because it's tr- on the one sense, like it's true, God already does it. But on the other sense, like the way it needs to work, the back and forth, the res- it's impossible. And this is where this text brings us immediately back to the gospel. Community is meant to be reciprocal. If God is to know us so intimately, 
And we're to know him intimately as well. If there's love and relationship and community, it has to go both ways. But we're stuck and we can't do it. Except for Christ. Praise be to God that Jesus made a way for God to be known. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Colossians 1 says, He's the image of the invisible God. That Jesus makes the invisible God visible. That Jesus makes the hidden God revealed. Beloved, Jesus' accomplished work on the cross makes a way for you and me, for sinful human beings, to not just be in the presence of God, but to actually know him and love him. In the way that we can. Not as fully as he knows us and loves us. But as much as we can. As much as the human mind, the human heart is able of engaging in relationship and love. Jesus has made a way for you to engage with your creator. And beloved, that is what you're made for. I'm going to end with this. Band, if you want to come up. C.S. Lewis has this famous quote from from his apologetics book where he says, if I find myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Beloved, you were built specially in all of creation. The crown of God's creation. Think about that. In a universe as grand as ours, black holes and quasar stars and web telescopes and all those things. God set apart your creation. God made you different. made you special. Put a spirit within you. Gave you the breath of life. Stamped his image on you. Said you are important to me. So much so. The God of the universe. The God who keeps gravity working. The God who keeps electrons interacting. The God who tells cells to stay bonded together. Considers you. He considers you with love and compassion. And he considers you with grace. And he meets you in your sin. And meets you in your darkness. And meets you in your shame. And with his love and compassion and grace. Says I am for you. That God. The God that grand who could be doing anything with his eternity considers you and loves you in spite of yourself. You're precious to him. In spite of your sin. You're important to him. In spite of how the curse has affected you. You're precious to him. So he seeks you out. And beloved, I I need you to hear this. You were made for this. When God especially created you and he knit you together in your mother's womb, when he thought of you and lined out your days, when he designed you, when he walked with you, even to this cursed and broken world, he built you for connection with himself. You were made for that connection, for that love, for that relationship. That is the promise of the gospel, that Christ will return and restore all things. And part of that restoration will be taking his children and entering them into the creation for which they were designed. Eternity with him. Forgiven, loved, perfected, holy, set apart with him forever. Beloved, you were made for that. In your very bones, and your DNA, the things of this world, the things that distract us, the things that hurt us, the things that weigh us down, big, important, heavy stuff. Stuff that, that dominates our thoughts and our hearts throughout the day. Beloved, you are not made for those things. 
The God of the universe, when he knit you together and thought of your days and wrote them out, did not write out things about your awesome career or your wonderful marriage or the hurts and things you struggle with or your favorite Netflix show, good and bad. The Lord made you for something important. He made you for himself. He made you for a relationship with him, connection to him and beloved. You can have that. You can be the creature you were built to be. Forgiven, loved, cared for, eternally united to the lover of your soul. Have that. Here today, right now. It's available to you. Whether you've been following him for decades or minutes, the God of the universe sees you. Knows you. Knows every piece. He responds to you with love grace, with invitation. So beloved, come down. We're going to sing a song. We're going to do all the stuff we normally do on a Sunday. We're going to sit, pray. We're going to sing a song together. We're going to take communion. I want to invite you for these next couple minutes, regardless of what circumstances brought you into this room today, regardless of how how joyful and life-giving your faith is right now or how dry and painful it is right now, I want to invite you, beloved, to come afresh to the love of grace, the well of grace. Consider the God of the universe who sees you. Right now, he sees you. Who is with you right now, he's with you. And who loves you right now. He loves you. His invitation is open. Talk to him. Chat with him. And then I'll pray us out and sing a song.